0: This is episode 53 of the Renew the Arts podcast, Fruitful Worship with Ryan Molinari. Welcome to the Renew the Arts podcast, where we discuss the role of art and creativity in the church and in the world. We're your hosts, Michael Minkoff and
1: Ryan Molinari.
0: Our motto at Renew the Arts is liberate Christian creativity, and we're doing this through cultivating Christian communities in and through the arts by inspiring art patronage and supporting artists. If you'd like to join our community of monthly donors and contribute to this podcast, please visit RenewTheArts.org forward slash donate. If you want to join the Porchlight Network and begin your journey into patronage, go to app.porchlight.art and sign up as a host or tender. Okay, today I have Ryan Molinari with me. She is an author who's just written a book on aesthetic discernment, and utilizing the fruit of the spirit in order to uh, discern aesthetic standards for worship art particularly, is that correct? And right now it's tentatively titled fruitful worship?
1: Yeah, tentatively fruitful worship and then um, the subtitle would be cultivating spiritual fruit in musical worship.
0: Okay, What, what got you interested in this in the first place?
1: Well, so I'm an organist. And I, as an organist, have been sort of dragged into the worship wars and came out of the worship wars realizing, okay, organs and choirs are not the only valid way to worship. But really in the midst of that, I was having a moment of passion where I was just kind of railing against some trends I'd seen in worship. And some of what I was saying was valid, but I think other parts of what I was saying was really just driven by my own preferences rather than really getting into what does scripture say worship ought to be. And as I was sort of in the heat of this moment, just on my little rant, my husband actually interjected and he said, you know, intensity isn't a fruit of the spirit.
0: Mm. And
1: I was not super thrilled at that moment to hear that. But (laughs) then I started thinking, wow, what, how would our ministry, not just our worship, but just how would ministry at large be different? if we started by evaluating things based on the fruit of the spirit and that seems like such a simple concept Mm -hmm. and yet it's so lacking in so many areas
0: yeah it really is real quick explanation the worship wars are i'm assuming the war between contemporary worship versus like traditional worship is that what you're referring to
1: Yes, absolutely. Assuming
0: you were firmly on the traditional worship side being an organist and and more like classically trained.
1: Yeah. And I wasn't always like that. I think I've sort of swung back and forth on the pendulum. Um, So, growing up, I actually went to church in first a a pretty large suburban megachurch. And then we left and church planted. And I grew up in a tiny church that met in a school gym um, the gym was the upgrade we started in the cafeteria. Like it was very small and very committed to the word, um, but very contemporary. And so that was all I was used to was sort of this Baptist church disguised as a non-denominational church. Mm-hmm. And really, um, we would sing the hymns, but always in a contemporary style. So then when I went away to college, I got an organ scholarship and I was there as a piano major. And I pretty quickly got a job at a Presbyterian church playing for their choir. And it was my first exposure to liturgy and the organ. And, um, I'd been taking organ lessons previously, but I was sort of half hearted. But that was really where I started to see the formational power of all of that. And mm-hmm. I think maybe, maybe that was my mild rebellion as a college student was, um, rejecting kind of the worship style I'd been raised on for, the liturgical style and the hymns and started a traditional chapel while I was in college and did all these, these things to sort of stake my flag on the traditional mm-hmm. side. And, and then since graduating have sort of had to reevaluate some of that.
0: Right. Kind of come back a little bit, pendulum swinging a little bit more toward the middle, I guess.
1: Yeah. Um, yep.
0: So, what what is the idea of uh, fruitful worship in a nutshell? Like give us the you know, bird's eye view.
1: Yeah, so in a nutshell, I would say singing is a fruit of the Spirit, and we don't think about that a lot. But you see in Ephesians, Paul tells um, his readers, be filled with the Spirit and sing. Mm. And and he's prescribing singing as a spiritual ministry to assist them in unity because they're to Mm -hmm. sing to and with one another. It's not just vertical. It's not just directed to God. And then they're also singing as an act of sobriety. so he mm-hmm. he kind of seems to indicate there's a problem with drunkenness in the Ephesian mm-hmm. Church, and he says, "Don't be filled with wine, be filled with the spirit, don't be drunk, sing mm. and then don't um don't give in to debauchery,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but do all of these things which are encouraged by singing. So you really see that um singing operates in a very similar way to the fruit of the spirit, being a product of the spirit and replacing the works of the flesh. So, I just think it's, we, we don't talk a lot about the relationship between the fruit of the spirit and singing even though singing is in some sense also a product of the spirit.
0: Right. So, it seems like it goes both directions that in one sense, the art must produce the fruit of the spirit In another sense, the fruit of the spirit is used as a metric or standard for assessing the art.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, when I started the project, it was really trying to provide a criteria for what is effective worship, for lack of a better Mm -hmm. phrase. Um, And as I went, I started to realize more and more that the fruit of the spirit are not just the criteria by which we evaluate our worship, they actually provide the vision and the mission of our worship. I know vision is kind of a hot topic, a hot buzzword right now in the church, but I do think that's exactly what the fruit of the Spirit are meant to be in our worship. It's our goal, but also the standard by which we are measured.
0: Okay. No, that's Mm -hmm. really good. For this reason, in the book, you designate love as sort of the central fruit around which Mm -hmm. all the other fruits are connected. And part of that claim is, I'm sure, based on the fact that love contains so many of the other fruits in its description in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, being patient and kind. And patience and kindness Mm -hmm. are both listed as fruit of the Spirit. So it's like, well, if love produces those things and it's mentioned first, maybe it's the central idea around which all the other fruit cluster, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think... It's interesting because, again, talking about this parallel between the fruit of the Spirit and singing, you also see, especially in Colossians 3, that singing, like love, sort of contains and produces all of the fruit of the Spirit, you know, when when done in the Spirit. So, Mm. you see in First Corinthians 13, all of the fruit of the Spirit are contained within agape. But then you Mm. also see in Colossians 3, Paul commands... The believers again to be singing constantly like that's a, a central characteristic of their congregational life and if you really read through that passage it mentions either a synonym for each fruit of the spirit a similar concept or just that fruit of the spirit directly
0: that's so being it was produced really interesting. singing.
1: yeah or or related to singing um is intrinsic to singing or should be fostered through singing
0: so I didn't plan on asking you this but I'm I'm interested. So even in a in a sacred space, let's say there's not always a piece of music that the congregation is participating in, maybe they're just mm-hmm. listening to it. Would you say that there's still the same um criteria and the same effect happening there?
1: Yeah, I would. Um and this is experiential. I would say I really for the first time understood what a Christian community ought to look like by singing in a church choir. And and so, it was this little microcosm. Not It wasn't the entire congregation, but it was a representative group from the congregation of people, you know, different jobs, different demographics, different ages, all singing one tune with different voices. And it was very much evocative of that verse of love, which binds everything together in harmony, right? right? And so... Right. I do think um, even in smaller ensembles, bands, and choirs, instead of just a congregation, the same criteria apply. And then singing is still intended to bear bear the fruit of the Spirit. Um, And I'm really being asked to kind of put that into practice right now. I actually relaunched a church choir at... uh, I was recently hired as a traditional worship director, and part of the job was to restart their choir, which had sort of died Mm -hmm. out during covid And it's been really sweet to just see the relationships building between these people. And I've felt just so cared for and so included. But I think I'm also being challenged to say, how does this benefit the congregation? Because right Mm -hmm. now, they'll stand up and they'll sing a special offertory, maybe once or twice a month, and they're doing lovely, and I can see how it's benefiting them. But Mm -hmm. I am starting to think now, okay, how can this be not only internally focused on this ensemble, but trying to foster the same fruit in the congregation at large. So that's an open ended question, but
0: sure. it is worth
1: thinking about.
0: And if singing is so important, what happens with those congregants who maybe resist the idea of singing, either they're tone deaf or they don't like to mm-hmm. sing or they don't sing loudly. or Are they, are, th- are they just going to have to find other avenues uh, toward the like super growth of that fruit of the spirit? Or do you think that maybe it's not for everybody?
1: Yeah. So I did not sing ever pretty much until, I don't know, maybe late high school. And then again, in college kind of took a time where I just wasn't singing and I would sing in church choirs and I would sing when I could kind of hide behind other people um, but I think I've really come to a place now and not just because I'm more confident and I love singing, but just because I've spent so much time in scripture and so much time on this topic that I do think singing is mandatory of everyone who physically can. Um mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I know there are tone deaf people, I suppose, but it's not necessarily about being great singers. It's about what what does the actual activity of singing do? And what it does is it shares a vulnerable part of yourself, your breath and your voice with other people. And ultimately, I think someone who struggles to sing by singing is doing even a more significant act of worship unto mm. their, you know, fellow believers and unto the Lord in a way that someone like me who just sings all the time is mm. maybe, I'm, you know, I might not. Be as cautious about it. I might be a little thoughtless, but um, right. yeah, may not I would be say as
0: productive as spiritual discipline for you, I guess.
1: Right? Yeah, exactly. Someone who loves, you know, journaling all the time is maybe like they're benefiting from it. But I think there's something to be said for somebody who's not natural to that spiritual discipline, recognizing that Scripture prescribes it, and really working so that they're able to do it.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, I want to see some like some practical legs on on this idea that you have. So, mm-hmm. taking love, especially since it's a central fruit of the spirit uh in your book, how would you apply like searching for love as a particular tool for aesthetic discernment? Like give us a yeah. specific example.
1: Reframing love as um criteria is important so I think when we think about love in worship we tend to think do I love this Mm -hmm. um and that's that sort of thinking has led me to sit through a lot of contemporary worship sets with my arms folded Mm -hmm. or one time I I remember I got out my journal in the middle of a worship set and just aggressively scribbled all the things that were wrong with the song which (laughs) was not a kind thing to do at all and to be fair, it was in a huge church. No one could see me, but I still have like, well, God could see me. And that wasn't very kind. Um, but I think in- instead of asking, do I love this? We need to ask, does this form a posture of love in me? And if it doesn't, is this my fault? Am mm-hmm. I not posturing myself in a way that this art or this music could do that? Or is there actually something wrong with the art? In which case... Maybe it is right not to sing it. Maybe it is right mm-hmm. to say, you know what, that song isn't for us. This, <clears throat> this form of art isn't something we're using in worship. So before we start to try to determine whether art is loving or characterized by love, we have to reframe that question so it's not self-focused just mm-hmm. by what we're attracted to, but it's focused on how is this forming us. Um, and then I think 1 Corinthians 13 gives us the pattern for that. And it's very straightforward, Mm -hmm. and again, it goes through all of the fruit of the Spirit as contained within love, right? Is this patient? Is this kind? That would be our first step. Okay. I was not being patient when I just started Mm -hmm. scribbling out all the things I hated about that worship set. That was not patient in any way. So whether or not the music was characterized by patient at that point wasn't the problem. I was Mm. the problem entirely because I was not willing to even endure a three-minute worship song. Before coming to a conclusion.
0: Well, how would you make that distinction in yourself, though? Especially, I mean, we can deceive ourselves very easily. So Mm -hmm. if you're listening to a song and you think, it's not that I hate this for personal selfish reasons. I hate it because I think it's really bad for all the other people that are here, too. Mm -hmm. And then you have, you know, is that like how how are you going to be able to distinguish between whether or not you've deceived yourself and actually you're the problem or if the work itself is in fact the problem or right. is it a situation where your position in relationship to the music might make a difference? Like would it make a difference if you were the, you know, music director as opposed to being just a congregant who happened to blow in one Sunday?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think, it's important then to think about the fruit of the Spirit as a unit um, mm-hmm. contained within love versus just love is patient, and that's the end mm-hmm. of it. Um, right. Because I think in that particular example, I think I could say I wasn't being patient, but we could also say maybe there was something intrinsically wrong with that worship song, and I was sensing that or whatever. But if you go through each of the fruit of the Spirit and each of these characteristics listed in First Corinthians 13... It starts to sort of whittle out the emotion a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes a little bit more objective. For instance, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. In the truth. Yeah. So if I had gone through all of the previous characteristics and still said, "I think this is all me," but then I got to "love does not rejoice with wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth," and I realized we're singing reckless love, where mm-hmm. a term. Is incorrectly used to characterize God, which is idolatry. I might say, oh, actually, I think my reaction was justified because Mm -hmm. this song is not fulfilling a serious aspect of what it means to foster and be characterized by agape love, which is Mm -hmm. rejoice with what's true. Instead, Mm -hmm. it's rejoicing with something that is fundamentally untrue. And so I think, again, it's important we don't just characterize or we don't just um, critique our worship and our worship engagement with just one aspect, just like the fruit of the spirit is essentially singular. They go together. Mm -hmm. So
0: for sure. And so I guess there's a sliding line, even on that, like a spectrum that would be like, if I were applying, um, love, even taking into account the other, uh, aspects and taking into account as many aspects as I possibly could, it's still the case that songs are going to be more or less good, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It's like there has to be a threshold at some point where you're like, this has crossed a threshold where I feel like it's not doing enough of building up or edifying to the congregation to even be useful anymore. Yeah, Um, absolutely. but But none of our hymns or our songs are ever going to be perfect. And, you know, people would say, well, you could just stick with singing the psalms. And it's like, yeah, but you're singing them in translation Mm -hmm. as well. You know, so like there's a lot that happened in between there, culturally speaking, that is very different from the original audience. um, You know, intention, even the authorial intention there. Um, We don't even have the music, so we have no idea where that, you know, where that was supposed to be. But, Mm -hmm. you know, is there a threshold? Do you have rules? You've gotten to this point, and if it's this bad, then this is where you know you just need to cut it out and not have anything to do with it? Or is it more just submit yourselves to each other and hope for the best?
1: Yeah, I think, again, I think there's sort of, I don't want to say one fruit is more important than the other because that is not true and they should ideally go together. Um, You know, we can't just be a patience shrub and a Mm -hmm. kindness tree. You know, they're all Mm -hmm. supposed to be Characteristic of us as Christians, and I think they're all supposed to be characteristic of our worship. Mm -hmm. But I do think, like, take if you take goodness for example, I would say the like scriptural faithfulness of our worship is should take priority over the musical complexity. Sure. And I wish that weren't the case because I'm an organist. I love counterpoint. I love a good harmony. And I think scripture is pretty clear that musical excellence glorifies God. I mean, we have Psalm 150, which is just cacophonous and wonderful. And Mm
0: -hmm. every
1: instrument ever is called to worship. Um, Right. And, but at the same time, I do think we're called to truthfulness prior to creativity, even though I don't want it to be an an either or. So I, I do think I'm willing to compromise on songs that I think are just Wrote and maybe not musically creative as long as I see that they're instructing my congregation in truth. Okay. Um, which is not my favorite concession to make, but clarity over creativity has sort of become my fallback motto in situations like that. Mm -hmm. I would also say, um, uh, I think kindness is so important, but kindness is also honesty and so, like if someone asks me to like this song, I've been, I've started to give myself the permission to say, no, I, I really don't like it musically, but I'm willing to sing it if it serves the congregation and it doesn't conflict with anything that I believe.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, sort of parsing out my my scriptural commitments and then my creative aspirations where I just, I wish everything could be Bach and everything could be beautiful And I'm working for that in as many ways as I can. But I also recognize the layperson doesn't read music anymore. And Mm -hmm. there are just a lot more limitations than I wish there were.
0: Yeah, that would be a good question, too, to ask as far as who we touched on it a bit. But who is responsible for applying these standards?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean... Again, just like in a perfect world, all worship music would be beautiful and created with deep creative integrity. In a perfect world, every layperson would care deeply about music. And more importantly, I think every layperson would care deeply about doctrine. Um, Mm -hmm. But realistically, so my husband's a pastor and I'm a worship leader. And this is, we're pretty early in our full-time ministry vocations and we've already learned Sometimes the pastor has to take out the staff and sometimes the pastor has to say like, enough's enough. We're not, we're not doing that. We're not interpreting Mm it this way just because it makes people feel better or we're not going to skip over this passage just because it's hard. We'll preach through all of first Corinthians and Mm -hmm. second Corinthians, even the head coverings passage. And so Mm -hmm. it's, I think ultimately um, For example, my book is written primarily for worship leaders, and I, I just, I'm really fearful that a lot of worship leaders neglect theology and spiritual disciplines. Um Honestly, I think a lot of worship leaders neglect musical literacy. I, I wish that weren't the case as well, but it is. And so I think the responsibility does ultimately fall on worship leaders to decide what is good for their flock, what is fruitful, what is nourishing, what is beautiful also. I really think a lot of the reason that worship music is the way it is is just because that's what we've been fed. And if you spend your entire life eating Cheerios, mm-hmm. Cheerios are great. Why would you want mm-hmm. to move on to like a fancy meal or meat or anything? We've just we've been fed milk for so long. Mm -hmm. And really, it's our leader's responsibility to start to feed us other things and to determine what is good for us and what will help us grow.
0: Hey there, Renew the Arts podcast listeners. We'll get right back to our discussion of the arts and the fruit of the spirit. But first, I want to thank our community of monthly donors. Your consistent contributions make the work we do at Renew the Arts possible. I'm so grateful for your partnership as we cultivate Christian communities in and through the arts by inspiring art patronage and supporting artists. If you'd like to join our community of monthly donors and contribute to this podcast, please visit renewthearts.org forward slash donate. If you want to join the Porchlight Network and begin your journey into patronage, go to app.porchlight.art and sign up as a host or attender. It's sort of an unfortunate situation, though, for a lot of worship leaders in that they don't actually have agency or control over Mm -hmm. what's happening. Even in terms of the music, they oftentimes don't make the musical selections. Mm. If they do make the musical selections, sometimes there are reprisals if they make the wrong kinds of choices as far as the leadership team is concerned. They're often in this sort of limbo uh, space between actual leadership and just non-participation. Like they're Mm -hmm. participants, but they often aren't actually leaders. And um, that would have to be addressed if worship leaders are actually going to be able to utilize what you would hope would be greater musical literacy in the service of the church and then combine that with these tools that you're developing in this book uh, in order to increase the productivity of worship for the spiritual growth of the congregation. But if mm-hmm. they don't have the agency to do that, it kind of just doesn't even matter. You know what I right.
1: mean? Right. right. That's hard. I So I'm, I'm in this worship leaders group on Facebook and I, I think Every day there's just posts of people who are so discouraged because, again, like you said, they feel torn between what their leaders want, what the congregation wants, what's relevant to culture, what's respectful of tradition, how to keep their two separate services united. It's just crazy. They're so caught in the middle in a way that I really, like you said, I don't think a lot of other ministry workers are. Um, so what I've really been careful to do in my book is I have a section dedicated to worship leaders sort of addressing them as shepherds and as artists, because I think Mm -hmm. worship leader has sort of taken on a life of its own as a term and as a vocation where where they're almost viewed not quite as pastors, but also not Mm -hmm. quite as artists. Right. Which is such a disservice because they should be treated as both. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm, I would not consider myself a pastor, but I would say I have some shepherding responsibilities over I do pick the music and I do right. decide what my choir sings and I submit right. to the head pastors. I'm not like sovereign over that, but I I do have some control over what they're being fed musically. And I also recognize I have a lot of artistic freedom and that's been so liberating to be like, Oh, I, I actually can pick some of the music I like and I can start to work that in there and start to get them accustomed to singing Baroque music, even though, my church choir is used to contemporary one line choral arrangements or something like Mm. that. So I think part of it is we need to renew in worship leaders, this dignity in their vocation of no, you, you are a leader and you are an artist. Like these are both valid aspects of who you are and what you do. Mm -hmm. And then I think, so as I sort of address that in my leadership section at the end of each chapter, I also try to add, a paragraph or two addressing lay people and how they're supposed to treat their worship leaders in accordance to the fruit of the spirit in worship. Um, right. How, and, and it's interesting how many verses actually do discuss that and do discuss mm-hmm. the fruit of the spirit as how specifically lay people interact with and treat their leaders. And so hopefully... Mm-hmm hopefully it's not just a, a one-sided battle where worship leaders are trying hard to accomplish all of the fruit of the spirit and do all of these things and end up just more exhausted than they already right. are. I hope that this encourages right. lay people and pastors as well to see their worship leaders for what they are, which is leaders and artists with a hugely important calling.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. So I'm, I'm curious, can you pick another one of your, of the fruit and show us, just walk me through how you might use another one of the fruit to assess like a piece of music or a piece of art in, in the church.
1: Yeah. So I've been thinking a lot about self-control. So something that's been really special with restarting this church choir is because they haven't sung in a choir since the beginning of the pandemic, they're almost a, a fresh fresh canvas at this point. Um, and... We've been doing a lot to sort of revive their vocal technique in a way that's healthy. So what I've noticed is a lot of these singers are just naturally gifted singers. Like I have, I have two whole tenors who can sing in tune and that is just tremendous. If you're familiar with church choirs, that is like (laughs) loaves and fishes right there. So (laughs) that's wonderful. I have a fantastic little, little group of people who all have just naturally lovely voices and great ears. And however, I think a lot of times what happens is people who have good voices naturally don't necessarily focus on technique in worship. And so what's happened is some of my singers are wounded in their vocal cords and they they didn't realize it because of singing with poor technique over years and years and years. So what we're doing now is we're doing all of these fun sort of therapeutic voice exercises. We're working with where we place our voice when we sing, all of these things so that we can sing sustainably long-term in a way that's beautiful but also um, maintainable. And so, as I was working on this, I realized that's self-control. And mm-hmm. I i don't think I've ever heard anyone in worship talk about self-control outside of just sexual fidelity or sobriety. hmm mm-hmm. But And those are, those are definitely problems in ministry, unfortunately, and in the world. But I think the overwhelming problem for worship leaders especially is poor vocal technique mm-hmm. and poor balance in their sound production. So I, I, I went to a church for a while and phenomenal worship, just world-class musicians, great. But I, I sat at the front and I wanted to wear earphones. It was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful music. It was just so loud in a way that was just beyond even being balanced. And I'm an organist, so like I love mm-hmm. loud music. I'm not saying you can't have loud music, but I am I do know a friend of mine's an audiologist and we kind of ran the math together and she basically said, "Yeah, they'll have hearing loss if they don't already have it because of this volume and even with once a week exposure. This causes hearing loss." Mhm. So, I just had to think, I'm like, we're told to praise the Lord with crashing cymbals and loud music and our voices are shouting, but with technology today, we have the capacity now to almost transcend sobriety Mm -hmm. in our sound production. It's it's no longer temperance, it's no longer self-control if we're causing permanent hearing loss to our worship musicians and our congregants. And, and I know a lot of worship leaders, too, who not only already have hearing loss, they have, they've had to go on vocal rest for months mm. at a time because they're screaming and they're belting and they're holding their necks up high and straining instead of mm. learning classical technique. And I'm not saying classical singing is the only way to go, but I, I, the technique is sustainable. There's mm. a reason opera singers can do several four-hour operas in a weekend because they've practiced a sustainable technique that gives you volume without hurting you. Mm-hmm. And so, just more and more I'm convinced this is such a neglected area in worship ministry, and it's why so many worship leaders are burning out and are hurting themselves. It, because there's just no consideration for self-control insofar as it relates to musical execution. But
0: right. that's
1: so important.
0: And you're talking about specifics and particulars, but that actually has a, a cultural and spiritual and psychological effect in terms of just the excess of the overall production mm-hmm. and how that affects a worship service and the congregation that's involved in it. Um, yeah. And I know what you're saying is not. Objective. It's not necessarily like if you've reached over this decibel range, you are now you know exceeding the bounds of self control. It's not exactly right, what you're yeah. saying, but it but it's more an issue of to be considered in those terms. It, it's helpful, like to just say, okay, this is a this is a metric we can use to apply to this. Are we actually both exhibiting and encouraging temperance, moderation, and self control in the way that we're approaching worship? And, right. um, you know, and I guess you might want to balance that over against the the joy part of it and the rejoicing part of it that also needs to be there. That mm-hmm. I guess, depending on the congregation, you might have congregations that are doing maybe a little too well with self-control and they might right. need to get a little bit more uninhibited and a little more on the rejoicing and joyful side of things. And that's one of the things I like so much about the possibilities of a book like this is that in these various different areas, you, you are going to find that different congregations have different areas that they need to like focus on and work on and mm-hmm. address. But just having like the whole thing laid out, it's just helpful other set of parameters to apply um, that are a little bit, they're not subjective and arbitrary like a lot of these standards oftentimes are. So right. that's, that is helpful because there's yeah. there's a large biblical and historical tradition that you actually are are entering into concerning all of these things.
1: Right. And part of my my purpose really is just what bothers me about, for example, the self-control things with vocal technique and sound production. I don't mind if occasionally someone belts. I love Broadway. I'm, I'm good with that. I do that in my car, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm fine if we increase the volume now and then. It's just we need to get back to why? Why are we doing this? Is mm-hmm. this like if you like if someone evaluated this church and they said, you know what, this is fostering joy, which it is, this church, for example, with the sound, joyful worship. Hands up, people mm-hmm. moving, everyone mm-hmm. singing. Um, they're, you know, knocking it out of the park with joy. If they can say, you know what, this is inspiring joy. We don't really see it as a problem. Like they've done their due diligence. They've examined it according to the fruit. They're doing what they need to do to make sure they're in alignment with scripture. And that's fine. I I don't want to pass judgment on a church just because I would do something slightly differently when they're still Mm -hmm. within the realms of, you know, biblical orthodoxy and being careful to make sure that they're doing their worship in a way that's in alignment with the fruit of the spirit. And so Mm -hmm. my, my guiding phrase as I'm writing this book has been scripturally faithful and situationally flexible. Mm-hmm. You know, my, the little Lutheran choir I direct is going to have very different problems and very different strengths than the megachurch band. Certainly. You know, at, but at the same time I have to recognize you know, scripture's full of tiny bands of Christians just singing together in quiet and it's also full of the Psalms where David is dancing like crazy and there are drums going mm-hmm.
0: and full both precision. are valid.
1: And both can be fully characterized by the fruit of the spirit if we're just really intentional about looking for them and cultivating them. And if necessary, cutting out things that aren't um, conveying or cultivating the fruit of the spirit.
0: And I love that it is an interpersonal standard as well. I mean, they could be applied to an individual, but they become a lot more interesting and a lot more fruitful, I feel like, when you start to address them as communal issues. Like how is this community being shaped um, Yes, and how am I individually contributing to that development and that shaping of the community? And that's why even just beginning with focusing on singing as a communal activity, such an important part uh, of of church life. To, I guess, wrap it up to some extent, all this might take a bit. Why do you think this is so important? Like how, how have these ideas firstly benefited you personally?
1: I think that there's really nothing more terrifying for me than writing a book and publishing it and then realizing there are really two options moving forward. Either I fail to live up to everything I've set forth in this book and people just laugh or disregard everything I've said and say, oh, well, you know, she was a hypocrite. Or I can go into it humbly and say, you know what, this is like my manifesto. This is what I want to grow into. This is the kind of worship leader I want to become. And this is the legacy I hope to leave behind. I haven't done it perfectly, but this is the standard by that I'm aspiring toward. And so it, again, it's scary because there are really the two options of just, I'm going to grow into this or mm-hmm. people will see the ways I've failed and immediately discount it. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's, it's been a really fruitful and fearful work of self-examination, of looking at all these fruit of the spirit. And it's really easy for me to point out the ways that this other church didn't show self-control. It's really Mm -hmm. easy for me to say, oh, this church had drummers flying in from the ceiling. Clearly, Mm -hmm. they don't have self-control. It's a little bit harder for me to say, I didn't practice very well this week. So, I just pulled out all of the stops on the organ, made it as loud as possible, and hoped no one would notice.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: When really the same thing's going on. So, it's been pretty convicting over and Mm -hmm. over and over. And I think with every chapter I wrote, challenges seemed to arise that would threaten um, my witness, I suppose, for that particular fruit. So, I know when I was writing Joy, I honestly went through sort of a season of depression. Mm -hmm. And it was, it felt spiritual. Um, It might also have just been I was writing about something... I felt I should feel and I didn't. Mm-hmm. And so, that mm-hmm. was a challenge. And then with peace, I just felt like every possible thing that could happen, happened. And so, it, mm-hmm. it's been a crazy, crazy journey. I spent one month on each fruit and I'm sure I'll spend another month on each fruit as I go back and rewrite. And it's been so refining. I think um really, I think still the most powerful one for me was love. and. There's this song we sing at my church pretty regularly. It's about love and a lot of people like it. And I don't. And I, I just, I would play it or I would sing it. And I would just, as a pastor's wife, I sit in the front of the church. And then at the church where worship is my job, I sit in the front of the church. And so I feel like I'm, people are always able to see my reactions and I'm not very good at controlling my face when I don't like things. I just, I miss masks. It was a, a good experience for me when no one could tell what I was doing with my <laughs> face. Um, but, but it's made me not just outwardly show distaste for a song, which has actually made me take a step back and think about it and think about it. Like you said, as a congregational activity, not just, Oh, do I love this song? How is this mm-hmm. song serving me? I've been able to say, okay, objectively, this song is truthful. It might not be overly deep, but I will say the worship leader at my husband's church, which is my church, but not the church I work it, at, mm-hmm. it gets a little confusing,
0: I it. I it. he does a
1: phenomenal job of pairing sort of a little bit more like happy, clappy worship contemporary songs with really substantial hymns, And so mm-hmm. he's done a really great job of sort of being like, here's the meat. Now we're going to wash it down with some milk and now we're mm-hmm. going to bring some meat back. So he's he's balanced that really well. And our church is made up of older formerly denominational Christians and then very younger Christians who have had maybe some baggage with that. So it's it's mm-hmm. been a really good balance. But all that to say, he's doing great. But I'll I'll stand up there trying to control my face, trying to just mm-hmm. sing because everyone can see me. And I I've started to focus more on how is this serving my congregation and how can I be a part of that service and so whenever that song comes up I've picked out a specific person that I'll pray for as I sing Mm. it and I'll just sing those words um not literally that would be creepy but I'll sing those words over that person as I as we worship and I think through that I've I've come to not dislike the song because I really like that person I care so deeply about that person that I've just decided, all right, I don't love this song, but this person does. How can I use this to care for um, this, you know, brother or sister in Christ? And that's been so refreshing and I'm hopeful other people will start to look for ways to do that as well.
0: Yeah. No, that's 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 great. Mm-hmm. Um, one final thing. What do you think, how does this apply outside the worship arts? We've spent uh, a lot of time in the podcast talking about various different ways that this functions inside worship and, and in sacred spaces. But do do any of the things that you're writing about in this book apply to the Christian arts in general or to arts made by Christians generally, even if they're intended for a more secular environment? mm
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, before talking specifically about art beyond the sacred, I also want to talk about life beyond these spaces we see as sacred.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I lately, I've just been so bothered by when people use the phrase "worship experience." Mm-hmm. Because when we say experience, we're sort of cordoning off worship as if it happens in our little, you know, church-shaped building, mm-hmm. and then we leave. And it's also right. indicating that it's something done toward us. We experience mm-hmm. it.
0: Yeah, we, and we then ser- we leave. it was served, yeah, we were served.:
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, we we show up, we get our joy fix, and then we head out the door. Um, Mm -hmm. We just treat church like a coffee shop, which a lot of them are. But um, Mm -hmm. Anyways, so I'm good with that. I love coffee. But anyways, I just think worship is not something we experience. Worship is something God experiences. Worship is something we do. Mm -hmm. And we do it with one another, to one another, for God. Mm-hmm. And so, I've just been trying to just eliminate experience from my worship vocabulary and tr- again, just treat it as a verb, as something we do, but also as something we do that has no spatial limitations. It's outside. Mm-hmm. It's in every aspect of our life. Um, And musical worship as well. I'm trying to just punctuate my day with different musical worship things instead of just waiting for Sunday or waiting for Wednesday for choir practice. Right. But I think to go beyond even musical worship... What's been so wonderful to discover through this writing process is that musical worship um, encourages the highest form of worship, which is bearing fruit. We're told in John, Jesus tells us that he's appointed us to bear fruit, to bear much fruit. And Mm -hmm. over and over when fruit bearing fruit shows up, it shows up in a way that bearing fruit not only edifies the church, but it glorifies God, which are Mm -hmm. essentially the two aims of musical worship as well. And so, when we bear the most fruit, we are the most worshipful. And I don't think any Christian would say the fruit of the Spirit are only limited to church, only limited to the building. That's something that has to permeate every aspect of our life. Musical worship is a way of practicing that fruitfulness, weekly and congregationally. And so then, if we can say, you know, bearing fruit has to be characteristic of our lives as a whole, not just on Sunday mornings, then I think we can then start to talk about arts beyond the church. And talking about how if an art encourages or exhibits the fruit of the spirit in some way, that does become an act of worship. It doesn't mean that that art is created for congregational worship necessarily. It could be, but that art does become an instance of worship on the part of that artist. And so, you know, if I sit down and I work on this book and it's really, really painfully pruning me and instilling the fruit of the spirit in me that's an act of worship even if I'm not necessarily singing and I'm not doing it at the church
0: right yeah no those are great those are great thoughts and and I I would say that's that's basically the same view that I've had for a long time that the the distinction between sacred and secular is fine because I understand that there are you know there's spatial distinctions and other things like that but Really, ultimately, it seems like the trajectory of God's plan is that the Holy of Holies would just get larger and larger and larger Mm. until it encompasses the entire universe. And so we're part of that um, ambassadorship to reconcile all things to the Father. And I'd say that any of the work that you do as an artist that isn't producing fruit either in yourself or in the people who are listening to it, you should definitely and seriously consider whether or not you're doing what God's calling you to do. And, right. Um, great. Right. So I, I hope that this can be useful. In general, I I love that you have focused it in the way that you focused it because I think it's a lot easier to to write about such a broad topic when you have at least a narrow scope of application to deal with, you know. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I'm looking forward to seeing it. When when can we expect to uh, to see this book out and about?
1: Yeah, that is a great question. So, this is my <laughs> first book. <laughs> we'll see. Um, I have been sharing excerpts um, now and then on my blog and on my Instagram. But so, the the goal is we're going to pitch to publishers. I have an agent and we're ready and I'm very excited. And from that point on, I would hope about a year. And then, of course, publishing is a slow business. So, it could be as long as two years or more, but we're hoping for shorter. And in the meantime, I'll be doing a lot of sort of promotional things and also just seminars and sharing tidbits here and there. We're, I'm doing a speaking tour in Arizona and California in the spring. So that, that'll be fun. And yeah, I'm excited to just keep refining these ideas. And when the book comes out, it will hopefully be in its most polished and final form. <laughs>
0: We're grateful to have had Ryan Molinari on to discuss her forthcoming book. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Renew the Arts podcast. We're going to close this episode with a song suggested by Ryan. The song is called Joyful Noise by artist Mary Van Hooser from her record Jubilate. Till next time.